Hey y'all, I'm Sandra Pham. And I'm Min Vu. Welcome to Asian in Austin. Episode 7. It is officially fall in Austin. Weather's getting a little bit cooler. What's going on with you these days? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is so busy. It's it's my favorite time of year. Like I love the holidays. I love Thanksgiving, Halloween, Christmas, all of that good stuff. But it's kind of wild, both like I think professionally and personally. What about you? Yeah, mine's, I've had a crazy year for sure. And I feel like we're at that stretch where like, because of all the holidays coming up, the rest of the year is kind of done. We're just now going through the motions of it all with all these like major events that kind of break up the rest of the year. So it's weird to to think about like everything that's happened this year. You know, I moved and traveled and like did a lot of some personal growth. We launched this podcast. I don't know. I'm very, I'm getting very like end of year reflective type of metal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. it. It is a good time of year. I feel just super grateful for the year and the community I have in Austin. It's been amazing, but obviously super challenging at the same time. So I, I'm, I'm looking forward to wrapping up the year. Yeah. It's been a crazy year. There's still a lot happening. I know you've we we both started new jobs. You're in the process of like moving. And yeah, hopefully next year will be a good space to like settle into our new lives, it sounds like. Yeah, I think in the vein of just gratitude, I wanna just share how amazing and thankful I am for not only my personal community, but the community that we've built through this and excited to see what's for the future. For sure. And by the time this episode comes out, we will have gone through election day. And I think we both wanted to talk about how civic duty shows up in the Asian American community here in Austin. And be able to talk to someone who is more closely tied to that sphere. And so I'm really excited that we were able to bring on Lily True to talk about her new organization, Asian Texans for Justice. The momentum around her and her organization has been really exciting. And so just a little more about her before we get into the interview. Lily True is the daughter of Vietnamese refugees and grew up in Southwest Houston, Texas, She's a cross-sector professional with more than 14 years of experience in public, private, and nonprofit organizations. Currently, she serves as the Interim Executive Director of Asian Texans for Justice, a statewide nonprofit with a mission to connect Asian and Pacific Islander Texans to meaningful civic action to build personal and political power. And with that, let's get into it. Hey, Lily. Welcome to Asian in Austin. We are so thrilled to have you. Thank you. I am such a fan. I'm just so excited to get to hang out with you guys today. And likewise, we are a big, big fan of the work that you do for Asian Texans for Justice. Um, so yeah, welcome. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we like to start off our show and really 
introduce our guest with a, like a really quick rundown of, of your identities. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, could you share your ethnicities, your pronouns, how long you've lived in Austin, what you do for work and any other identities you want to share? Yeah, of course. I know you said this is like a quick introduction. Nothing with me is quick and easy. So I'm going to start with my ethnicity. And so usually when I introduce myself, I tell folks, you know, my name is Lily Truro. I am the daughter of Vietnamese refugees, which is true. Both my parents, you know, came to the U.S. after the Vietnam War and established a life here from Vietnam. They were both born and raised in Vietnam. However, I identify as being Chinese American because my grandparents fled China to go to Vietnam which is how my parents were born in Vietnam. And so I think for a lot of folks in our generation, right, it's like generational trauma, fleeing from poverty, fleeing from warfare. Uh, that is my story. And so I'm a little bit of a mutt. I identify as being Chinese American, but with lots of Vietnamese influences. So Chinese Viet American maybe is how I identify ethically, but my pronouns are she, her. I have lived in Austin two different stints. I lived in Austin once as an undergrad years ago before Austin is what Austin looks like today. And then I have been in Austin this time for about five years. I came back from grad school and have stayed since then. And I am now the interim executive director of Asian Texans for Justice. We are a statewide 501c3 nonprofit that serves the API community all across Texas. I'm so super proud of that. And just generally a big fan of being Asian American and like to scream it loud and proud. And that's just a huge part of how I identify. Thank you. That was really great. And I, I know I'm already excited about this conversation we're going to have. I know we're going to jump into so many different things. Well, one, I want to name how you described your ethnicity and how you shared some of that background, because I had met a friend who also had a similar background where she had a lot of Vietnamese cultural traditions and like upbringing, but her father was Chinese and grew up in Vietnam. And I think that's a whole part of just like the Vietnamese history and the makeup of the country that a lot of people don't realize is that there's kind of this crossover and there's this history between the two countries, obviously, and just all of that associated with it. So I'm really glad you were able to to clarify kind of how that shows up for you. So thanks for sharing that. Kind of going through this heritage story, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about your childhood and how your parents decided to come to the States or what the circumstances kind of after the war led to, to their arrival here. Yeah. If you could walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, no, I'd love to. And then I love that you guys are grounding in that conversation, right? Because I would not be who I am if my parents didn't go through their experiences. And as a second generation Asian American, when I introduce myself, I oftentimes start by telling my parents' story, right? Because I think that brings so much light to who I am and, and how I show up in the world. So both my parents, like I said, were born and raised in Vietnam. They both come from really large families. My dad is one of 10. My mom is one of seven. So lots of siblings. And because my grandparents on both sides, they fled China during periods of famine and periods of just immense poverty. They both came to Vietnam with really nothing, right? Both sides of the family came with nothing. And so my parents grew up really low income. And so as a result of that, once the war was over, both my parents lived in South Vietnam. And so they, they kind of saw the Americans as the ones who would help them. And so once the Americans left, right, once they vacated and they decided, you know, Never mind, we're not in this anymore and we're going to go home. 
um, a lot of South Vietnamese really felt like they had no one to turn to. And so for a lot of people in my family, it wasn't a pick of where to go. I think for a lot of folks, America was kind of like the dream. But the reality was when you live in poverty and you're living in now this new communist state and you're kind of living in a state of fear, it was like, we're going to go wherever we can. So I had some relatives who went to, to Germany because that's where they could go. And on my mom's side, my mom and her brother, my uncle, the two of them were young enough that they were able to kind of make the journey. They weren't married yet. They didn't have kids. And so of the seven kids on my mom's side, my mom and my uncle were the ones that were sent to the U.S. On my dad's side, it was him and one other brother. Again, they were old enough to care for themselves. They didn't have families to have to care for. Um, they were boat people. And, you know, I think, I think it's it's so different now with immigration when folks come from Asia, right? Like that's like not a pathway anymore. But my parents were genuine boat people. So they they got on this rickety boat with basically like bare minimum possessions and journeyed over to the US in different ways. So for my mom, I know her journey a little bit better just because she's a better storyteller, but it took her about 18 months to get from Vietnam to the US having to stop at multiple refugee camps in Southeast Asia. So she had to stop in Malaysia at one point. And her telling the Malaysian, Malaysian government tried to kill her. Like literally they put her on a boat with a bunch of other refugees, dragged the boat to the middle of the ocean and just left them there. And so she amazingly, they encountered, you know, larger ships that were able to then save them. They were then transferred to another refugee camp. And so it was a pretty harrowing journey for them to come to the U.S., when they finally did come to the U.S., they came with the support of a religious nonprofit um, based in Chicago who helped them settle and find jobs, find housing. So we're really, really grateful to nonprofits who do that kind of work for refugees, because without them, people come to the U.S. with nothing, no language skills, no education. They're really the ones that allow them to make a life here. And so imagine these people from very tropical Vietnam, right, where it's like the coldest it gets is like 70 degrees. And we've now dropped them in the middle of Chicago. And they don't speak the language. My, my parents, neither of my parents were very well educated. Both of them ended up in Chicago with this church. And they started working a minimum wage job at a manufacturing site not knowing any English, kind of crammed into this little apartment. And that's where my parents met. And that's where they eventually got married. And I was born in Chicago. And so I spent the first four to five years of my life living in Chicago. And, you know, th those, those years were really tough for my parents. That's the other thing I think a lot of folks don't think about is that refugees come here having just gone through a really traumatic experience. And they're not given the time and space to process what just happened to them. It's immediately, you're here, you have housing, you have a job, go work, pay rent, you know, pay taxes, contribute to the society without any consideration of what they just went through, especially for boat people of that era, right? So I think a lot about that. And that was the environment in which I came to, right? I was born, you know, in the mid 80s. Now everyone knows my age, but I was born in the mid 80s in Chicago to, to two people who really had gone through a lot. Yeah, so much of that feels so somewhat similar to my parents' story and just kind of hearing that, but I never, it just gives me chills because every time hearing it, it is just still so amazing to me how our parents really went through those experiences and have settled and how different all of the landings of, of their stories kind of unfolded. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. So eventually your family did leave Chicago and ended up in Texas. What kind of drove that move for them? I, I think it like the epitome of it was like seeking the American dream. 
Because at that time, my parents were working minimum wage, right? And, and my dad just said to himself, there's no way I can give my wife and my child a better life doing this. And those years were really hard because it was just my parents. They didn't have money for childcare. My mom would work morning shift. My dad would work evening shift. So there would always be someone to care for me. And so there was actually this period of like five to seven minutes where they were changing shifts, where they had to leave me at home by myself as like a toddler, right? They like just threw me in my crib and was like, we got to change shifts. And, and they had no choice, right? As people who came here with nothing. And so my, my dad was just like, this can't, this can't continue. Right. Like I'm never going to be able to find economic opportunity continuing to do what I'm doing. And so luckily my uncle, my, my mom's brother had learned the convenience store business in Texas. And so he had married a woman whose family was kind of in the convenience store business and he had learned the trade. So he told my mom and dad, come to Texas, we'll teach you the trade. And you can hopefully save up one day to become a small business owner, right? That's like the American dream for so many Asian Americans who come to this country. And so in the early 90s, my dad packed all this stuff into a car. My dad's telling as we get into the car, my mom is just crying the entire time because she's so scared because, you know, all she's known in the U.S. was Chicago. And now she's basically giving up everything she knows to move to this weird place called Texas, and they moved to Texas in the early 90s. And that's what they do for several years. They they learn the convenience store trade, which is extremely hard work. You know, the, the like the business is open 18 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's a industry that is ridden with crime. It's an industry that is physically taxing. And, and my dad came and learned the trade and he did that. And he eventually became a small business owner. And so I then kind of grew up in, in Texas, they, we moved to Houston. I grew up in Southwest Houston. And, you know, those were kind of the most formative years of my life. But, you know, over the course of my early childhood, as my dad was learning the trade and pursuing this opportunity, we were eventually able to be lifted out of poverty and into the middle class. So then my younger sister was born in Chicago. And so her memories of her childhood were very different than mine. So she kind of grew up in middle class, whereas I definitely grew up a little bit more low income. Um, so it's always fascinating talking to her because she's seven years younger. But both of us, you know, these were our formative years was growing up in this convenience store and watching how hard our parents had to work to be able to provide that life for us. You have such a great understanding of, of your family's history and kind of what led up to today, basically, like. You, the the product of you, right? Growing up, how were your parents communicating some of that struggle to you, if at all? Or is this something that came later in life? Yeah, I would say it definitely came later in life. I think any ways that my parents tried to convey anything to me when I was younger was probably done in like not a super healthy way. You know, my my parents, I think like a lot of people in their generation weren't given the space to communicate. They weren't given the space to explore their emotions, right? Like survival was really what was important. And when you are one of seven kids or one of 10 kids, your parents are so busy just trying to keep you alive that no one's asking you how you feel. No one's asking you what your life aspirations are. And so as a result, I think the way they raised me reflected that experience. It was, you know, my, my relationship with my parents was actually pretty tenuous as I was growing up. I struggled a lot with my identity. I struggled a lot with understanding them. And, and to be totally honest, I don't know that I really started to have a lot of empathy for their experiences until I went and studied what this period was like, 
right? Like I had to go back and learn, like what did both people go through? Why were people fleeing from China to Vietnam? Like what was going on? Like what was the context in which this was happening? Because my parents weren't talking about it because it was painful for them, right? Like, so understandably they weren't talking about these things. And even when they were, it was so like matter of fact, they didn't really bring in a lot of feelings or a lot of reflection because that's just not how they were raised. Yeah, there's a lot of like, it happened and we're just moving, we're just looking forward. And that resonates with my parents as well too. It wasn't until I specifically asked them 18 years into to my life that I was like, okay, can you tell me a little bit more? I remember going to an elementary, we went to a field trip to, I think the LBJ library. And there was like a whole Vietnam War piece there. And I'm watching these videos and it's kind of the first time, I'm probably like in fifth grade, fourth or fifth grade. It's probably the first time that I'm really engaging with this subject matter and content. And I didn't even understand the difference at the time between North and South, like the what the conflict was to begin with. So then it's like this very conflicting feeling of what I'm even watching. And I don't think I even went home to like clarify that with them either. Because also there was a language barrier too growing up. And so, yeah, it took years for us to get to a place to talk about that. And even then, it's it's still an evolving process when I engage with them on the topic. They're a lot more open these days. And I think just with time, healing, space, like like you said, it's all very traumatizing stuff. And it's still within the span of a generation, you know, yeah. um, so it makes a lot of sense. Were there language barriers at home for you, too? There were, you know, and I think the language barriers for me evolved over the years. So I, I feel like it's still challenging. So what's interesting for me is when I was born, there were no other kids around because at the time, my parents' siblings were still largely in Vietnam. So my first language is actually Chinese. We only spoke Chinese at home. Neither of my parents spoke any English. And when I first started school, when I was five years old, and I was starting kindergarten, my English was so non-existent that at home, my parents didn't call me Lily because Lily is my English name. They called me by my Chinese name. When I first started school and my teacher would say, Lily... I wouldn't answer because I didn't know that was my name. And I was so behind linguistically. And so I tell folks this a lot. I'm actually really grateful to have grown up in Southwest Houston. My early years, I grew up in Aleph ISD. I think folks from Aleph feel very proud you know, about Aleph. It's, it's, a, it's a big identity factor for us. And so my early years were in Aleph. And Aleph is just this beautifully diverse community. And you literally have people from all backgrounds, all ethnicities, speak all kinds of languages. So my early years, I was an ESL student and I credit the infrastructure of ALEAF and their commitment to non-English speaking students as how I was able to overcome that language barrier. So by the second, third grade, I was fluent in English. And then my, my Chinese skills started to really regress. And by the time I was like in the fifth or sixth grade, my mom flipped out and was like, oh my God, you're only speaking English. So then she put me in Chinese school and then I had to go through kind of that painful Chinese school thing that so many Asian kids have to go through. And then, you know, I'm jumping ahead now to high school, but in high school, I had like a second identity crisis where I was like, am I Asian or am I American? I'm so confused. I don't know. So then in high school, I like doubled down on my Asian culture and really embraced Chinese. And so I now speak three dialects of Chinese. And, and I think a lot of that was actually out of desperation to really find my identity. So linguistically, my experience has been really complicated over the course of my life. 
Wow, that is so incredibly impressive to be not just fluent in Chinese, but in three different dialects. I wish I could say I had the same experience because I think I grew up with, with a similar experience as we've kind of shared growing from a leaf, being an ESL. And I wish I had leaned in and like really studied and learned and grasped Vietnamese, but I, I'm terrible at it. So just hearing that you're, you're fluent in three dialects, like amazing. I think it's hard. I think it was really confusing for my parents. I think on the one hand, they were like, we want her to be really good at English so she can you know, be a doctor, which I'm, I'm obviously not. But on the other hand, there was this like deep fear of, oh my gosh, she's losing our culture, right? And my, my daughter is becoming more of a stranger to me because of this language barrier. So I can't, I can't even imagine what my parents were going through, right? And I think so many immigrant families feel that where I was like, I want my kids to assimilate because that's going to help them become successful. But I also want them to know our culture and then fearful that your own culture will hold them back. And I think that's that's always really sad to think about. But I think my parents probably went through that too. Yeah, I had a ping pong kind of situation where like at home I was speaking Vietnamese in school English. And then there came a period of time where my mom really wanted to up her English game. So she would tell me don't speak Vietnamese at home and only wow. speak English to her so that she could like practice. But then it was like, wait, you're not speaking Vietnamese anymore. Go back to speaking Vietnamese. So it's always been a, a little yeah. bit of a back and forth uh, in that. And I think that's such a unique part of like an immigrant refugee experience, it seems like in the States. Yeah. The other thing that I want to talk about a little bit more is knowing just like what Sandra shared uh, with her journey in terms of, you know, she could have gone one way or the other leaning in versus kind of your trajectory in which you did want to lean a little bit more into your Asian American identity. I guess, can you talk to me a little bit more about like why you chose that way? As Because I think there there's often like different paths that people choose, right? Like either we quote unquote whitewash ourselves and then right. like go that route or you lean even further in and then, you know, both with its pros and cons in the growing up era of Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I, I'm going to share my, my personal experience and I'm going to, I'm going to say this now. I'm going to say this again to anyone who's listening. It is not a binary. You don't have to pick between your Americanness and your Asianness, right? And, and unfortunately that's how I felt. And I think that's how like, you know, you guys probably felt at one point and so many people of our generation, my hope is that that is not the case for young people today. My hunches, they still go through that, but I just, I cannot emphasize enough you don't have to pick between your Asian identity and your American identity. Like they, they are not, this is not a binary choice. Um, but that's what it felt like to me, right? And, and I grew up in, in an incredibly diverse environment. I was surrounded by black, brown, Asian kids, like really all shades, all backgrounds. And I still didn't feel really seen or complete or like I belonged. And that's a problem we still see today in Asian American culture, right? Like we, we don't feel like we belong. And I think th there are a lot of reasons why that is, you know, it could be representation. It could be because, you know, we're not in places of, of leadership. We're not in positions of power. We are so stereotyped and typecasted into certain positions in society that I think a lot of Asian Americans don't feel full belongingness. I think that's an aspect of it for me. I think another aspect of it for me was just my parents were so distant from American culture, right? Like you have some people who are immigrants who come because they have a PhD and they're teaching a university or they come because they have, you know, some type of credential. And then you've got my parents who spoke zero English, knew nothing about this culture, and they came into this country really feeling foreign, 
And being the eldest daughter, right? I think a lot of Asian Americans who are the eldest daughter, it's it's probably going to feel this being the eldest daughter, there's just this like sense of burden of I need to care for my parents. And so linguistically, for the early parts of my life, I felt more Asian. In terms of food, like we primarily only ate Asian foods, like my parents weren't really assimilated yet, we weren't trying different cuisines. Um, In terms of culture, like, I didn't speak English, so I didn't watch Sesame Street. I didn't watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I sat and watched Hong Kong TV shows with my parents because that's what everybody watched in the 80s and 90s. We watched Hong Kong TV shows, right? Like that was what was cool. And so culturally, I felt really Asian. But then there was the other side of me. It was, you know, the kid that went to school and hung out with these diverse populations of kids. And when I was at school, I mostly felt like I belonged. And so... It was just this weird dynamic of feeling Asian sometimes, feeling American sometimes, but the idea of being Asian American never felt like an option. And so by the time I went to high school and I had to pick, I decided, you know what, I'm Asian. And I think I did that a little bit as a way to like rebel, as a way to be like, I'm not like my friends, right? Like, I'm not going to be basic. I'm not just going to do what everyone else is doing. I'm going to do me. And then I also think a part of it too was just pride in my culture. Cause I think I grew up with so much Asian pop culture, like Hong Kong stuff and Chinese stuff and Taiwan stuff. Like I grew up with these celebrities no one knew about and these pop stars no one knew about. And I was proud of that. And so in high school, I like doubled down, right? I was like, I'm going to be Asian. And that's kind of why I learned so many dialects. I was like, I'm going to watch all of these immensely popular shows. I think like any Chinese kid from that period is going to remember like Meteor Garden. And they're going to remember just like a lot of like pop culture references from, from that period. I wanted to absorb all of it. I wanted to be able to karaoke to these songs, right? I wanted to, I, I wanted to be in with my, you know, my Asian brothers and sisters, And so by circumstance, I was like, okay, I have to learn more of the language if this is the identity I'm going to pick. And then after college, as I got older and I didn't have the free time to like download all of these shows and like be in with like what was cool, I kind of had to back off on that a little bit. And, And now looking back, I wish I didn't feel like I had to pick. Like I wish I really felt at liberty to be able to embrace both sides or to embrace what it means to be Asian American. Um, but, you know, I didn't feel like I had the luxury of doing that. And I think a lot of kids probably still feel that way. So, so you know, again, not a binary. You don't have to pick. You can be all of these things all at once because humans are complex people. So understanding that, you know, you grew up in A-Leaf, and you went to college in Austin, right? And then you left, but then have more recently come back. And can you tell us a little bit more about what brought your return to Austin? Yeah, absolutely. So I came to UT as an undergrad and I studied business. Not because I had a burning desire to do business, but because my parents wanted, wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, neither of which I thought was going to happen. And for folks who may or may not know, I mean, UT has a great business school. So I was like, I'm just going to do that. And without really thinking about what it is I wanted to do, I kind of just did the whole like model minority route, right? Like if I can't be a doctor or lawyer, pick the next best thing. So I came, I got a business degree, I got a marketing degree specifically. So not even like a good Asian degree, like it wasn't even finance or accounting. I got a marketing degree. And then I worked in the private sector for a decade 
I worked for just these like big multinational companies doing a variety of like business functions. And it was, it was fun and I was good at it, but it wasn't fulfilling. And it wasn't until I was almost 30 where I had to start asking myself, like, what is it I want to do with my life and really like reflecting on what mattered to me. And that's what led me back to Austin, actually, is I, I decided I was done with the corporate world and I wanted to make a pivot and reflecting on my education, right, all of my like linguistic barriers and being from a low income family, I really identified education as being a pivotal part of what allowed me to have the life I lived. So I wanted to go back to grad school and to pivot my career into something public education related. So I came back to Austin, went back to UT to get my master's and made that pivot into now the nonprofit space. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about once you made that decision to to leave the private sector and really lean into policy and advocacy work that you do and your work with Asian Texans for Justice, how that came to be, and then also share a little bit about what the organization does for those of our listeners that aren't aware. Yeah, absolutely. So my pathway into policy and advocacy was completely by accident. I'm going to be kind of ashamed to share this with your listeners, but like I wasn't even a good voter in the past. Like I did not vote every election. I don't think I voted in 2008, the first time Obama won. I don't think I voted then. I did not participate. I, I think I was always very opinionated. Like, I think if you asked me, how do you feel about like XYZ issues? I could tell you, but I did not participate. I didn't know anything about it. And all of this really came by accident because of the 2016 election. Because in 2016, I was getting ready to move to Austin. I was getting ready to start this new stage in my life. And you guys might remember there was a presidential election in 2016, um, you know. Minor, minor election. Minor election did not change your course of history at all. And I remember watching the news and just being like, no way this dude is going to win, right? There's no way he's going to be Hillary Clinton. And I thought to myself, it'd be so cool to play some small role in helping the first woman become president of the United States. So that was the very first time I had ever volunteered or done anything related to politics was in 2016. And so, of course, she didn't win. And when she didn't win, that's what basically changed my life completely. Like, I think it really shifted the way I saw the world because for people to have voted for him, despite the allegations of corruption, of sexual assault, the horrible things that he would say blatantly, right? Saying he could shoot somebody in the face and get away with it. And for people to still vote for him, that fundamentally changed the way I saw the community that surrounded me. And so from 2017 onwards, I continued to try to find a home in the policy and advocacy space. And because I had just made the shift from the private sector to education, I was doing a lot of work in the education space, advocating for black and brown and low income kids. And that was all I did. I was living, eating, breathing, my volunteering, my internships, everything was around how do we create a better education system for black and brown kids. And I did that for all of 2017 through 2019 when I was in grad school. And when I was about to graduate from grad school, I started to think, you know, in 2019, I was working in the Texas legislature on, on public education issues. And I was starting to think, you know, we're, we're talking so much about black and brown kids and low income kids as if low income kids are exclusively black and brown. 
And I remember thinking, I was a low-income kid. I was an ESL student. So many of my friends were. Like, why, why are Asian American kids not a part of this conversation? Like, we're not all solidly middle, upper middle class. We don't come with all of these resources, right? And, and I really started to think about, like, why were Asian Americans left out of so many conversations? And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening throughout all of this, you know, the, the fight for dreamers and for, for those who are undocumented was going on amidst all of this. And I remember just thinking, I don't even really understand what racism against Asian Americans even looks like. I did not have the words. I didn't have the context. Like, I remember feeling moments of injustice as I was growing up, because right? obviously my parents were victims of racism, but I didn't have an understanding of racial structures and of white supremacy and what that looked like. I didn't have really a baseline understanding of these things. So 2019 and 2020, I set out to start to explore. And I started to study, like I was dug in like a nerd. I was like, I'm gonna read about the model minority myth. I'm gonna read about these things that I hear about. And I'm gonna try to really understand what it, what it means. Because there's a point in my life where I was like, model minority myth, like that can be a bad thing. That just means people think I'm smart. And then when I really started to study it, I was like, oh no, this is harmful. This is keeping our community down. This is pitting us against other communities of color. Like, this is not okay. And coincidentally, all of this was happening, like I said, in 2019, 2020. And of course, 2020 was when we shut down because of COVID. And then here I am building this baseline understanding of what racism looks like for Asian Americans and building this baseline knowledge of what Asian American history is and all the ways Asian Americans have contributed and all the ways Asian Americans have been victimized by the system. And then COVID hits and then it just goes crazy. Donald Trump continues to just use really harmful rhetoric. There's this rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. I and a group of Asian Americans in Austin, we were doing some loose organizing, try to get Asian Americans to turn out in the 2020 election. But it, it was just a bunch of friends just hanging out, doing things together. By 2021, it felt urgent. It felt like we couldn't just do this recreationally anymore. Like people were literally dying, right? Like elderly were literally being punched in the face, burnt, you know, shoved, stabbed. I mean, it did not feel recreational anymore. Now I felt like our entire community's existence required more action. And so then in April of 2021, the same group of folks planned a Stop Asian Hate rally here in Austin. It was hosted in Houston Tillotson at our HBCU, which we thought was incredibly symbolic. And we really appreciated their partnership and their support with that event. And we thought it was just going to be like a little rally. I mean, it's Austin. No one really thinks of Austin as being like a super Asian town, right? People think of Houston and Dallas. And we ended up getting just incredible support. I mean, it was one of the largest Stop Asian Hate rallies in the country. And we ended up raising over $50,000 in donations. And that was such a powerful moment for us. And then this, this came really right after the Atlanta spa shooting. And so I think everybody was thinking about it for the first time, like, oh, wow, like bad things happen to Asian Americans. But really what, what that meant for us was now we had this chunk of change, right? We had $50,000 and we had to figure out what we were going to do with it. And that's really how Asian Texans for Justice was formed. We really started to think about where were their gaps? We, we, we thought about everything. Do we need to start a mutual aid organization? Do we want to start a political organization? And, you know, where is there a gap? Where is there a need? And in 2021, folks who are paying attention to the Texas legislature and to Texas lawmaking will remember that 2021 is when the legislature passed 
a horrible voter suppression bill, SB1. They passed a heartbeat bill that you know prevented women from being able to get abortions after six weeks. That's when they passed open carry, where basically anyone could carry guns, regardless of who you were. And all of these bills, these horrible bills for our community were being debated in the Capitol. And people were saying, oh, these bills are bad because it's gonna impact black and brown communities. And I remember just thinking like, what about Asian communities? Voter suppression hurts Asian communities too, right? And so these bills would pass and these you know, great organizations would come out and speak against them. And there was no API voice. There was no API group that would come out and say, hey, this bill, this is what it's gonna do to our community. And so that was the gap that ultimately we decided we needed to fill. We needed to create a statewide organization that could be that voice and that could advocate for the community when horrible things were happening in the state capitol and lawmakers think we're not paying attention. Well, we will. Asian Texans for Justice will pay attention. <laughs> okay. I have chills hearing your story. So thank you for sharing that. The reason why I have chills is because I went to that Stop Asian Hate rally at HTU. And it's so fascinating to see as an attendee outside of of what's going on in the planning committee and and kind of the organizing there but to then on the other side of it here kind of the behind the scenes of what was going on and and even your personal journey being activated from 2016 on and just seeing how it kept on compounding year after year and and pushing that forward for you is is really inspiring so I just want to say that and I'm super proud of all the work that you've been able to do and really thankful of the work that you continue to do. And I think that's also, it's an interesting time in, in Austin's Asian American history too, you know, like that's part of Sandra and I's decision to do a podcast focused in Austin, knowing that the city is, has kind of a spotlight on it, obviously in the country. And you're right. We also saw a need where there are great black and brown organizations in the community really advocating for those communities and putting voice to them. And it's understandable that sometimes maybe the Asian voice might not be present, but that means there's a need. And it's great to see all of these new organizations fill that need. I'm curious, as your organization continues to gain momentum and I mean, you've got the amazing grant from Gold Futures Challenge. Congratulations on that. How do you see entering the Asian Austin history timeline, right? Because when I think of organizations, even when we were doing this podcast, we were trying to compile a list of different organizations in Austin. And there seems to be, this is just like from observation, one generation of Asian organizations that exist in Austin, and then maybe like a newer generation that's coming up a little bit more. And I think that's also just reflective of the Asian American experience too. That's part of maybe a, a little bit of tension and like growth opportunity there. But I'm curious as you know, you're you're putting up the organization and stuff, where do you see y'all coming into that conversation or how how does that work for you? Yeah, no, I love that question. And that is such a reality of the environment and the landscape we operate in. I want to say first and foremost that Asian Texans for Justice, any of the work I do, any of the work that my colleagues do at ATJ, we do it all on the backs of who we consider our API organizing godmother, Alice Yee. Alice Yee is a force to be reckoned with. I won't name drop her age, but Alice has been doing this for decades. And had it not been for Alice's mentorship and her connections and her support and her encouragement, none of us would have been able to do this. 
And so I, I think your assessment is very real. A lot of API organizations that have existed historically in Austin, I would classify them as being one led by an older generation and two largely defined by ethnic identity. There weren't a ton of pan Asian, pan API orgs, right? You'd have like the Chinese orgs, you'd have the Indian orgs, you'd have, you know, like it was very split by ethnicity and they were all run by people who were older, right? Maybe people are a parent generation. And, and there is conflict, right? Young people have a different approach. I think young people think about the API identity a little bit more differently. Like when I see an Indian person, I don't think, oh, you're different than me, you're Indian. I think, oh, another Asian person, how cool, right? And I don't think older generations have that. And I think it's by circumstance. It was by the reality of how they came here, how they grew up, how they lived. But I do encourage young people who care about this work and who are motivated by this work to learn from the older generations, right? You're not going to agree with everything they say. You're not going to agree with all of their approaches. They, they might do things that don't make sense to you, but there is a wealth of knowledge there. They do understand things and they do appreciate things that I think younger generations, like we just haven't, we haven't built that muscle memory. We haven't really started doing the work yet. And, and so for me, kind of not being like young Gen Z, but also not being the older generation of Alice and kind of her colleagues, kind of being somewhere in the middle. That's something that I try to bring with me when I do this work is how do I respect the old guard and give them the acknowledgement and the credit for all of the trailblazing they did while also letting young people rise because young people get it. Like they get race and they get API identity and they get progressive action in a way that like the rest of us don't. And so it's this constant conflict, it's this constant battle, but I do think they have to both have space to exist. Recognizing we're very deep into election season, obviously we're getting ready for some pretty big elections and we've kind of touched on it, just the friction between the generational communities. I would love for you to kind of touch on what you're seeing within the AAPI community how we're seeing not only voter participation, but what are some of the things that we're doing to kind of create those bridges, right? When we talk about how are we disseminating information when it comes to our community, tell us a little bit more about that. I think the thing about this year that has been so exciting for me, even more so than 2020, and 2020, APIs had record voter turnout, right? Like it was like in the news. We talked about just, wow, Asians have really showed up. 2022 feels really different for me in that I think folks are even more fired up, right? Because our community has gone through a lot the last couple of years. And I think this is the first time that I can remember in my lifetime where regardless of what generation you come from, regardless of your ethnic backgrounds, how you came to the U.S., what you do for a living, this is the first time where I think collectively the API community is like, I'm not going to stay quiet. I'm not going to make myself small. Like I am pissed. I am pissed off, I'm tired of being ignored, and I'm going to claim my space. From my perspective, I would love that to look like everyone goes out to vote, right? Like for everyone's idea of claiming space to be like, I'm going to vote, I'm going to practice, you know, my civic rights, and I'm going to play a role in the election process. The reality is that that's going to take time. Right. I think it's going to take time for everyone to understand the power of voting. It's going to take time for everyone to feel like they're included in the process. I think language access barriers are still very real. Lack of voter education is still very real. Candidates don't reach out to our community. 
media does not provide equitable coverage of our community. I kid you not, you know, and I got to throw Beto under the bus, but I was at a Beto event and he said voters of color and he followed that with black and Hispanic voters. And after the event, I went up to him and was like, hey, when you say voters of color, you have to remember AAPIs too. And he was, you know, he was very gracious about it. He was very apologetic. But we still have to constantly remind people that, hey, we exist too. And so I think what feels different about this year is that we're doing that. Is we're reminding people, hey, we exist too. And so, you know, my hope is that that translates into everyone voting. But beyond that, come January, the Texas legislature is going to convene again and they're going to pass more laws. And if history is any telling, there are going to be some laws passed that will not be good for our community. I hope that energy, that momentum, that anger and frustration, that that persists into January through the end of session. And for APIs to say, hey, like you have to listen to me. That law, that law is not good for my community. And I'm going to stand up. I'm going to testify. I'm going to speak out. I'm going to email my members. I'm going to call them. I'm going to sign petitions. I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect my community. I think young people get it. I think older people are getting it more and more so now. And so I really do hope that that just continues to translate into collective action. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing too, and what I've just observed anecdotally in my own family, the language barrier feels like the biggest piece to have the entire AAPI like voting population to be able to show up in in good force. I still have like shock when I see Vietnamese translated city information. When COVID came out, I was able to share with my parents the Austin Public Health guidelines because they had a whole chart in, in Vietnamese. The other challenging part is that obviously AAPI is such a broad group. I mean, when we talk about Black and brown communities, language typically is more unified and there's a, a common language spoken there. But when we're grouping all of our ethnic backgrounds together, there's not. And so that makes it both beautiful and super challenging to like activate all of us, right? Yeah, I'll share one really quick anecdote. I was able to convince my parents to do an interview recently with uh, Texas Monthly. And the reporter asked my parents, what would it take for you guys to be more politically engaged? Because they're not politically engaged at all. And, you know, the reporter was like, do do we need more Asian candidates? Do you need more information in your language? Like, what would it take? And my mom said, I don't care if the candidate's Asian. If, if we get strong candidates who are Asian, that's great. But that in and of itself will not motivate me to, to participate. She said, the reason why I don't participate is because I don't have the information I need to decipher who's a good candidate and who's a bad candidate. I'm not going to walk into a polling place and just vote for whomever. I need to walk in feeling like an educated voter. And that was so powerful for me because my entire life, I thought my mom just didn't care And here she is telling this total stranger, like what I need is to feel engaged and informed. And so, so that is why ATJ, we do push out in language resources during voting because we know how crucial it is. But to your point, it's so hard to offer enough languages that meets everyone's needs. Because when you think about the Asian community in Austin, people are like, oh, it's just a bunch of like Indians and Chinese and maybe some like Vietnamese sprinkled in. When in reality, we have Burmese refugees, we have Afghan refugees, we have immigrants that come from all parts of Southeast Asia. I mean, our our language needs are so diverse and it's really expensive and hard to get things translated into all these languages. Yeah, I wanted to share. It has been reassuring. I think there's more effort there from various organizations to really invest in providing 
accessible information. So I sat in on a focus group a couple months ago, and it was how can we get our older communities to be a little bit more civically engaged? And there were a few folks on that call that were a generation uh, different than mine, but kind of sharing like, we just don't have the information. And I'll be honest too, though, even I, you know, I'm pretty much primary English speaker here. A lot of information that is put out there is very, very confusing. I still struggle sometimes figuring out, well, what candidate really resonates with me? Where do they stand on certain topics? If it's hard for me to decipher, imagine how our communities who are not native English speakers are consuming that information and trying to use that and, and then go to the polls. They rather just not participate. So, you know, I, I totally get your mom's point there. The one thing I'll say to that is that the responsibility of making that information available to voters are the candidates. The candidates are the ones who are responsible for putting out their platform, for communicating what it is they stand for and to earn your vote. And the reality is candidates and political parties have not been trying to earn API votes. And we know this because they're not reaching out to us. They're not calling us. They're not hiring API staff. They're not investing in in-language media, right? Like my dad listens to a ton of Vietnamese radio. Pretty sure candidates are not investing a lot in airing ads on Vietnamese radio. There are pathways for candidates to reach us and they're not doing it. And so, so that is another priority for ATJ is how do we uplift API profile so that candidates are coming to us, right? We shouldn't have to work that hard to get that information. They should be making that information available to us. Thank you for holding Beto accountable. Like I love that you you shared with that. And I totally agree with you. I think absolutely we need to be holding candidates accountable, especially if we are donating to their campaigns and things like that. We, we are an important group that needs to be certainly included. I would love for you to share kind of as we're wrapping up, a, what is like on the roadmap for ATJ? Like, what are those top topics, things that you're really focused on? And then B, what is the call to action? How can we support you in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we are a statewide organization. And so our goal is to be able to reach every AAPI in the entire state, right? And there are over now 1.9 million AAPIs in Texas. And so we still have a really long road ahead of us. But what that means is every election matters. I know we are coming to the end of 2022 and folks are like, oh, we've just got past, you know, this big election cycle. There is another election that's going to come in 2023. And that one is arguably more important because now these are local elections and local elections impact your day to day life way more than a midterm or presidential election will. So you'll hear from us in 2023. We're still going to try to get out the vote. We want every Asian American who's eligible to to get out there and actually vote. Um, like I mentioned, 2023 is also a legislative year, which means a lot of policies will be passed. These policies will impact your lives, going to impact the lives of our kids. We need to stay engaged. We can no longer let them talk about these policies as if it doesn't impact us, right? We need to show up at the Capitol. We need to testify. We need to call. We need to email. We need to show them that we're paying attention and we're going to hold them accountable if they're going to pass laws that hurt our community. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that we're going to be really focused on, and, and this is a big priority for us, is developing our youth. I just cannot emphasize enough how much we believe 
in the next generation of AAPIs. These kids are so passionate and they're so smart and they really understand intersectional cross-racial solidarity. We really want to continue to build out training programs and opportunities for them to take the stage and for them to lead, right? Because it really has to be grassroots. So we're going to continue to do outreach here in the Austin area and beyond and really reach out to our high school and college students to really get a sense of what do you care about and how do we make that happen for you? So those are really our big priorities for 2023. You'll catch us in the community. We're going to host events. We're going to get to know everyone. Follow us on social media. That's really the best way to figure out what it is we're doing. And then, of course, go on our website, sign up for our emails. We also love to share reminders and links to interesting things in our monthly email as well. Sweet. Well, we will take this time to move into a rapid fire of sorts. But before we do that, can you share with us what being Asian American means to you today? Being Asian American to me today means overcoming all of the doubt, all of the obstacles, and really being rooted in a lot of joy and a lot of celebration of our food, of our culture, of our accomplishments, of our contributions to this to this country. There, there are very few days where I don't look around and feel immensely proud to be Asian American. And I'm proud because I know where we came from, but I'm also proud of what we are accomplishing right in this moment. And I see it all around me. I see Asian excellence all around me. And so I hope everyone takes a moment in their lives every day, every week, whatever works for you to bask in that glory and to celebrate it. Right. Like whether it's watching, you know, the Jeremy Lin documentary that I just watched, which was fantastic, or, you know, celebrating the fact that there's this really great new dumpling restaurant in your community or what, whatever it is. Right. Celebrate the diversity and celebrate just the, the joy that comes with with who we are because we deserve it. I love that. All right. Let's get into rapid fire. Sandra, you want to kick yeah, us off? Yeah, for sure. What is your favorite Asian snack? Oh, it's a tough one. Probably Taiwanese chicken nuggets. Oh, that's a good one. Where where are good Taiwanese chicken nuggets in Austin? There aren't a ton to choose from. Coco's has a Taiwanese chicken oh, nuggets. Yeah, that's I'll go to Coco's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What is your favorite Austin hobby? Oh, my favorite Austin hobby is, to be totally honest, is so nerdy. It's like politics. You'll find me at the Capitol. Like just that committee hearings, just testifying. Like I just love the energy and feeling like I'm a part of what's happening. Yeah, no, that checks out. <laughs> what is your favorite Asian Austin restaurant? My favorite Austin restaurant, if I'm honest, it changes quite frequently. Right now it's probably Ho-Ho, which is like off of 35 up north. They just, I don't know, every dish is just consistent. So, and every time I order, I order enough like a week. It's ridiculous. I mean, my mom, if we have like a party or a gathering, she's like, I'm getting takeout from Ho-Ho and that's what I'm bringing. Yeah, Ho-Ho's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, so good. That's awesome. Lily, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your story with us and all the great work that you're doing. We really appreciate you. Super proud of you. And can't wait to like continue to support all the great work that you're doing. I'm proud of you guys. I love your episodes. I'm going to continue to listen to every single one. You guys are amazing.
that was such a good conversation around, I would say, like just the different generations. I do feel inspired. I know I want to jump on the train and that I really do feel inspired by Gen Z and how politically active, socially active they are in really standing up for what they believe in. So I uh, appreciate Lily coming on the episode and sharing the the call to actions and, and really what's top of mind for her and the organization. Yeah. And I, I love that she really emphasized that it's not a binary again. I think we can't stress that enough, even, even when we kind of ask these questions just because of our experience with the idea of like choosing between your Asian identity and your U.S. American identity or or feeling like you have to choose, but that you don't really have to. And I think Gen Z is really hopefully leaning more into that. I think obviously that still can be a challenge, but their uh, their fearlessness is very admirable. <laughs> it's like very yeah. inspiring, actually. Yeah, honestly, like I love that they are growing up having different conversations that you and I maybe had growing up, I, I did feel like it was a choice. It was either you were going to lean in on the Asian side or the American side. And I feel like kids these days know that that's, that's not the case. When you, if you come from an immigrant family background, that your, your identity is so up to you and the conversations that we've had with our guests, I, I feel like it's a lot more natural and more ingrained in their mind than maybe you and I. And so just having these conversations and tools and discussions around all of this is has been really eye-opening and enjoyable for me. I also appreciated talking about language barriers between the different generations of Asian Americans here in Austin and in the U.S. I think that's a big part of like sometimes tension between parents and children and and I'm curious how as we have fellow millennial parents a- Asian American parents like how that starts taking shape for their kids you know because there might not be as big of a language barrier but I think about when I text with my mom and dad like half the battle sometimes is deciphering what what they're saying in maybe broken English, because I can't read or write in Vietnamese, you know, and yeah, there's a lot of miscommunication that can happen. Oh, yeah. Around like, really deep topics, whether it was COVID or, yeah, things that are going around in the world, or even like our professions, like I know you and I have talked about it. I don't really think my mom understands what I do for a living. And that's kind of tough that you can't even share the work that you do, you especially being in social impact and DEI work, how much of that do our parents really truly understand? Yeah, well, I'm just thankful for people like Lily doing this this great work and, and providing those resources, which do take a lot of money, as she was saying, to translate all the different languages that could be helpful to the communities here in Austin and Texas at large. So please, please, we'll have links to the organization in the description, on social media. Please support Asian Texans for Justice and all of the work that they're doing. With that, (laughs) that will conclude our episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on our last episode of the year. That's crazy. Yeah. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye.